There are few things worse than being called intolerant, inflexible, or close-minded. Who wants to be that? Isn't it far better to be open to everything, dismissive of nothing? Well, not necessarily. Let's frame this a different way. Should we have any standards at all? Or should the standards simply be, anything goes? These are new questions. For most of American history, standards of acceptable behavior were generally agreed upon. Today, we can't even agree on the difference between men and women. Those on the progressive left seem dead set on unsettling just about every settled question, all in the name of being open-minded. But can your mind be so open that your brains fall out? Do we need to tolerate every crackpot view under the sun, no matter how harmful, no matter how false? Do we need, for example, to keep an open mind on murder? Of course not. That question's settled, and every citizen has an obligation to follow the law. Even if someone doesn't want to, even if he identifies as a serial killer. How about a more controversial example? Consider the case of Drag Queen Story Hour, an activist organization that sends transvestite men wearing sexualized clothing into elementary schools and public libraries to read books and sometimes even dance in front of little kids. In the name of tolerance, must we allow men to strap on stilettos and wiggle around in front of toddlers, even when our communities object, even when we know that it's wrong? This example is a little bit tougher for the tolerance crowd. Not because the answer is obvious, it is, but because any way you answer, someone's views are not going to be tolerated. If we answer, yes, we do need to tolerate Drag Queen Story Hour, then we are refusing to tolerate the wishes of parents and taxpayers who don't want their public property used in drag shows for kids. If we answer no, we're refusing to tolerate the wishes and behavior of the transvestites who want to perform in public schools. There is no world in which the answer to this question accommodates and tolerates everyone and everything. So the question that divides us is not whether every public behavior must be tolerated. The question that divides us is which public behaviors should be tolerated and which should not. For most of American history, if a man dressed up in sexual clothing to perform for children, he'd be arrested. For centuries, America had refused to tolerate all sorts of bad things, such as obscenity, the incitement to violence, and public nudity. Even when such laws and limits have been repealed or gone unenforced, it isn't as though some sort of pure tolerance has blossomed in their place. Instead, old intolerance has been replaced by new intolerance. Fifty years ago, a teacher might be fired for teaching the Communist Manifesto in school. Today, a teacher could be fired for teaching the Bible in school. Ten years ago, if you called a man a woman, you'd probably get a punch in the nose. Today, if you refuse to call a man a woman, you might find yourself banned from social media, expelled from school, or out of a job. So then who decides what those limits of toleration should be? Until relatively recently, the answer was, we the people decide. It sounds quaint now, but we had what were once called community standards. And what were those standards based on? The short answer is tradition. That is, what has worked well in the past? Today, we seem to live in a world with no reference to the past. 
We live in what British journalist Douglas Murray has dubbed Year Zero. It is presumed that we are much smarter than all those who lived before us. This is a dangerous way of thinking because it's not rooted in anything, and it can be uprooted by the next political fad. Of course, not everything that was done in the past was good or ought to be preserved into the future. For centuries, slavery was commonplace, but it wasn't good. But tradition is the anchor that helps us discern the good. It avails us of the wisdom of the ages, and this discernment of the good led us to abolish slavery. Even though some of the founding fathers owned slaves, they knew it was wrong. They were anchored in the biblical idea that all men are created in the image of God, and that tension eventually guided the country toward abolition. If we're going to overturn social norms, the burden of proof that radical social changes are going to make things better should be on the revolutionaries, not on the defenders of tradition, the conservatives. The conservatives have over 3,000 years of history behind them. The Bible, the Magna Carta, English common law, the American Constitution, the Gettysburg Address. I'll take that over Drag Queen Story Hour any day. How about you? I'm Michael Knowles, host of The Michael Knowles Show for Prager University. Thank you for watching this video. To keep PragerU videos free, please consider making a tax-deductible donation. Spring 1787. The American Revolution had been won, but there was no peace, because there was essentially no government. There were states, but they weren't united, not even close. There was no mechanism to collect taxes, no way to provide for the national defense. The nation was living on the edge of anarchy. George Washington understood this. So did James Madison and Alexander Hamilton. So did many others. Something clearly had to be done and fast. The word went out across the land. A new constitutional convention was called for. When Washington announced he would be there, the meeting gained instant credibility. 55 men from 12 states arrived in Philadelphia in 1787 to draft the framework of a national government. There was no guarantee that they would succeed. And even if they did, there was no guarantee that the American people would accept their plan. Failure was a real possibility, and everybody knew it. The different interests of the states were just too pronounced, over trade, taxes, and slavery, to name just three of a dozen points of conflict. Yet they all knew that they had to succeed, or there would be no country. Just a loose collection of individual territories sharing the same continent. Easy prey for the European powers. Not only was America's future on the line, so was the glorious principle of self-government, as stated in the Declaration of Independence, the reason for the Revolutionary War. So, these 55 men locked themselves in a room for four months, working six days a week, through the middle of a hot Philadelphia summer, to get it done. They all agreed they would say nothing to the press about their deliberations. They even closed the window shutters so that no one could look in, making a very hot room even hotter. As the temperature rose outside, tempers rose inside. Still, they persevered. On September 17th, they finished, and the country and the world learned what they had produced, the Constitution of the United States, 4,500 words of collaborative genius. How did they do it? There are many answers, many happy accidents, perhaps even divine intervention. But here are three reasons that stand out. First, they knew the stakes. 
The Articles of Confederation under which the country had been operating since the Revolution were clearly inadequate. This was dramatically demonstrated in 1786 when a group of New England farmers took up arms in a tax dispute. Known as Shays' Rebellion, the rebels came close to overturning the state government of Massachusetts. No one wanted anarchy, but anarchy was staring the country in the face. Second, these were very capable men. They were both learned and pragmatic. Many, like James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, Gouverneur Morris, and James Wilson, were steeped in the great works from classical antiquity, from Thucydides to Aristotle, from Livy to Cicero. And of course, they knew their Bible. They were also men of the Enlightenment and saw politics as a kind of science. They studied what had worked in the past and what had failed. But perhaps even more important, they also had enormous practical wisdom, sorts of hard lessons that could only be gained by experience. The Americans for much of the 18th century had been effectively governing themselves because the British crown mostly ignored them. Contrast that to Bourbon France or Tsarist Russia, where one person wielded absolute power. Third, they were prepared to compromise. Perhaps the most extraordinary feature of the Constitutional Convention is that they stuck it out. The delegates disagreed on almost everything. They disagreed on how power should be divided. They disagreed how senators and representatives should be chosen, how much power the executive should have, and how much the court should have. And most of all, they disagreed on slavery. Yet on every issue, often after furious debates, they reached a compromise. The easy thing would have been to go home and denounce the entire project. A few did, but most didn't. They knew they had to make this work. There was no good alternative. And there was a final and crucial element, the paternal presence of George Washington. No one wanted to fail in front of the general. He had come out of retirement and put his reputation on the line to preside over this convention. If it did not succeed, all the sacrifices he had made to win the war would have been in vain. He knew it, and everyone in the room knew it. Washington rarely spoke, but he didn't have to. His mere presence was enough to remind them just how important this moment was. It's not by accident that we call him the father of the country. The Constitution was designed to deal with the crisis of the moment, but also to guide the future of the young nation. It has succeeded beyond anyone's wildest dreams. I'm Jay Cost, Senior Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and author of James Madison, America's First Politician for Prager University. It's hard to imagine how we could screw up higher education any more than we already have, but we're about to if we make student loan forgiveness a reality. There's a Latin phrase that helps explain why. The phrase is qui bono, who benefits. In the case of student loan forgiveness, it's first and foremost the colleges and universities who can charge outrageous tuition largely paid for by student loans. Second, politicians who make cheap promises of debt forgiveness to win votes. And third, students from upper middle class families who would get taxpayers to pay off their student debt. Who doesn't benefit? Everyone else. That includes those who didn't go to college and a new class of suckers, people who went to college and paid off their student loans. Student loan forgiveness is a reverse Robin Hood. It takes from the poor and gives to the rich. The most obvious argument against forgiving student debt is that no one forced anybody to borrow money for college. Why then should others be forced to pay it off? Before you think I'm gonna go all tough love on you, let me say, I have a lot of sympathy for young people who have dug themselves into the student debt hole. I'm one of them. 
For decades, our society has made the claim that you need a college degree to get ahead in life, and that the smart bet was to take out any amount of loans to ensure a bright future. And if you need help with the tuition, Uncle Sam, the U.S. government, stands at the ready with his generous student loan programs. Just fill out a few forms, and presto, there's a check in your mailbox. You're off to college. But here's the dirty secret. For every dollar of student loan money the government makes available, university tuition goes up by 60 cents. Colleges and universities don't see college loans as a problem. They see a gravy train. Most college administrators may be cowards, ready to cave before every politically correct fad, but they're not dumb. If the government is going to loan you money to go to college, they can raise tuition virtually at will. You can afford it, just borrow more. And what do the universities do with all that tuition money? Build more buildings, hire more administrators. Hey, somebody has to pay for all those diversity, equity, and inclusion officers, right? Qui bono. Meanwhile, you stagger out of college with a degree and a boatload of debt to pay off to get the same job and salary that a decade ago didn't require a bachelor's. What a great way to start off your adult life. If you fit that profile, you're very likely to favor student loan forgiveness. And who can blame you? With a simple stroke of a pen, some or all of your debt goes away like it was never there. And the least you can do in return is vote for the politicians who made it possible. At least that's how the politicians see it. Qui bono. But who's gonna pay for your good fortune? The taxpayers, of course. The most modest debt relief proposal out there right now, $10,000 per borrower, would cost $300 billion. To wipe it all out, $1.8 trillion. And a lot of those taxpayers will be working-class people who didn't go to college, in many cases because they didn't want to take on all the debt. That's why despite easy student loan access from the government, people in the lower and middle classes make up a smaller percentage of college students than they did 50 years ago. The reality is that loan forgiveness would overwhelmingly benefit the already well-off. It's projected that for every dollar of debt cancellation that would go to the lower middle class and impoverished student loan holders, seven times that would go to the top 20% of earners, the lawyers, accountants, and doctors who borrowed heavily for their degrees. This group also includes the people who staff government bureaucracies, corporate HR departments, and school administrations the people chiefly responsible for the woke mini-revolutions upending institution after institution. For this managerial class, student loan forgiveness would be great. But is it fair? Qui bono. Student debt is a real problem, and it requires some real solutions. But blanket loan forgiveness makes everything worse and rewards exactly those actors who have had such a large hand in creating the crisis, especially the opportunistic universities and politicians. Instead, we should focus on three common-sense reforms. One, reduce college tuition and availability of student loan funds going forward. We have to break the vicious cycle of ever-increasing tuition and ever-increasing government loans to pay for it. Two, we should target limited relief to lower- and middle-class Americans who have been sold a bill of goods about the value of an expensive university degree not the lawyers, accountants, and bureaucrats who have already benefited from the system. Three, relief should come from rich universities, not middle-class taxpayers. Yale, for example, has a $42 billion endowment. Universities have taken advantage of the problem, and it's time for them to contribute to the solution. Qui bono? I'm Inez Stepman, Senior Policy Analyst at Independent Women's Forum for Prager University. Thank you for watching this video. To keep PragerU videos free, please consider making a tax-deductible donation.
Have you heard the expression, the road to hell is paved with good intentions? Well, it's true, and it helps explain why there's so much evil in the world. Take the 20th century, the bloodiest century on record, in which about a hundred million people, all non-combatants, were murdered by despotic regimes, nearly all of them communist. Many of the people who supported communism, both outside and inside communist countries, thought they were doing good. They were sure they had good intentions. Many of them were nice people, doting parents, considerate neighbors, courteous to strangers. The Soviet Communist Party killed 20 to 40 million people. The Cambodian Communist government massacred about a quarter of the Cambodian population. The Chinese Communist regime killed more than 60 million of its own people. The roads to all these hells were paved by many people who had, or believed they had, good intentions. Were it not for well-intentioned people who believed in communism, the truly evil people who implemented these genocides might never have come to power. To cite but one example, it was American and British men and women, many with good intentions, who delivered to the Soviet mass murderer Joseph Stalin the secrets to making an atom bomb. They, too, were probably nice people. Of course, there's no large-scale genocidal movement today in America, but the road to lesser hells in this country is also paved by many nice people who believe they have good intentions. Many of the teachers who bring up topics that rob young children of their sexual innocence are motivated by good intentions. Most of the Americans who vote for politicians who seek to defund the police a guaranteed recipe for increased murder, rape, and other violent acts, think they have good intentions. So too those who seek the elimination of hate speech. They have good intentions, even though in reality, they constitute the first serious threat to free speech in American history. The road to hell is paved with good intentions because most people who support bad causes, and even many who commit evil, believe they are motivated by good intentions. Their thinking goes like this, I mean well, therefore I do good, therefore I am good. And if you oppose me, you do not mean well and cannot be good. So given that good intentions are so often morally worthless, what are we to do if we wish to increase goodness in society? Or to pose the question another way, if good intentions pave the road to a terrible world, with what should we pave the road? to a beautiful world? The answer is wisdom. Understanding as much about life as possible, especially the consequences of any position you hold. Wisdom is asking what does good, not what is well-intentioned. Good intentions and even being a nice person without wisdom leads to evil. The reason to worry about the future of America and Western civilization is not that our elites are composed of people with bad intentions. It is that our elites are largely composed of people lacking wisdom. The word for those who lack wisdom is foolish. Most college presidents, professors, and increasingly most teachers in high schools and elementary schools, most editors and other journalists, most of the business people who run big companies, and most so-called experts— are foolish. Why are they foolish? Why are these often very successful men and women devoid of wisdom? Because they have not pursued wisdom. You have to study wisdom to know how to do good, 
just as you have to study physics to know how to be a physicist. If you're taught wisdom, there's a good chance you'll become wise. If you aren't, there's a good chance you will be a fool. And foolish people do a great deal of harm. But tragically, wisdom is no longer taught by most parents or in most schools. Until the early decades of the 20th century, American students were expected to know the greatest sources of wisdom, such as ancient Greek and Roman writers, Shakespeare, and most importantly, the Bible. But then, America started paving the road to hell. It stopped teaching wisdom. It stopped teaching the ancient Greek and Roman writers, Shakespeare, and the Bible. The road to a good world is paved with wisdom. It's not enough to be nice, and it's not enough to have good intentions. I'm Dennis Prager. Do more. That's what Americans demand of their presidents these days. A real president, Democrat or Republican, knows how to use the office. A real president makes things happen. Or so the conventional wisdom. But actually, there is another model. A president can succeed through inaction by doing as little as possible. One such president was Calvin Coolidge, who took office upon Warren Harding's sudden death. From the time Coolidge became president in 1923 to the time he left in 1929, Coolidge served a philosophy that was simple and powerful. Don't do. Coolidge was our great refrainer. The leadership style matched the personal style. Coolidge did not waste words, hence his nickname, Silent Cal. For these quiet ways, the 30th president absorbed much abuse. A Washington socialite, Alice Longworth, said that Coolidge looked like he'd been weaned on a pickle. Coolidge, indeed, cut a sharp contrast to Alice's father, Theodore Roosevelt, who had served a decade and a half earlier. And what a contrast Coolidge provides with another Roosevelt, Franklin, who came just a few years later. Born on July 4, 1872, in rural Vermont, Coolidge embodied the simple virtues of his forebears. He was hardworking, sober, and cautious. He was also fearless. A lifelong civil servant, he worked his way up from city councilman to governor of Massachusetts. He made his political reputation by facing down the Boston Police Department when it went on strike in 1919. There is no right to strike against the public safety by anybody, anywhere, anytime, Coolidge told strikers. Then the Coolidge administration fired them all and built a new department from scratch. This made him a national hero, a politician with a backbone. The refrainer brought that backbone into the White House and got the kind of results men of action long for, especially economic results. Low unemployment, often well below 5%, low taxes, higher wages, fewer strikes, new technology for the masses, a Model A or a Bell phone or an RCA radio, and most remarkable of all, a shrinking federal budget. If you remember just one fact about Coolidge's presidency, let it be this. Coolidge left the federal budget lower than he found it. How did Coolidge do it? First, he resisted taking unnecessary action himself. Second, he imposed the same discipline on Congress. That wasn't easy in the early 1920s. The progressive movement was on the march. Just as now, progressives always wanted to do something. Progressive plans included more aid for agriculture, encouraging unions, 
increasing taxes, and nationalizing important industries such as railroads and utilities. Coolidge blocked the progressives and thereby blocked their expansion of government. He vetoed farm subsidies twice, even though he personally came from farming country. Coolidge was sympathetic to farmers, but helping them wasn't the government's function. Coolidge made especially good use of the pocket veto, the ability of the president to veto a bill by simply not returning it to Congress. It is much more important to kill a bad bill, he said, than to pass a good one. The legislation Coolidge did endorse was designed to meet the same minimalist end, restrain the government. Together with his Treasury Secretary, Andrew Mellon, Coolidge lowered the top tax rate to 25%. Their goal was to shrink the public sector so that the private sector could expand. And the policy worked. The country liked Coolidge's thrift. In the 1924 election, the progressives won 17% of the vote. But Coolidge won with more votes than the Democrats and progressives combined. So everyone, including his own Republican Party, thought Coolidge would surely run a second time in 1928. But he declined, like George Washington. He thought the country needed a change in leaders. Yes, it's possible to criticize Coolidge. As much as he tried to avoid it, Coolidge in the end signed bills he would have preferred not to. And the president showed a penchant for protectionism, rarely a sound economic policy. Some suggest that Coolidge was responsible for the stock market crash and the decade-long depression that followed after he left office. But that's a fallacy. The depression stretched so long, not because of too little action from Calvin Coolidge, but because of too much action by his successors. It is ironic that a man of such personal modesty presided over the era known as the Roaring Twenties. But that was the paradox. Coolidge was a Scrooge who begat plenty. Perhaps the day has come for a new politician to follow the great refrainer's rule. Where others do, don't. And if you have to do, do less. I'm Amity Schles, author of Coolidge and chairman of the Coolidge Foundation for Prager University. Thank you for watching this video. To keep PragerU videos free, please consider making a tax-deductible donation. Herbert Hoover, the 31st President of the United States, succeeded at almost everything he did. And not just succeeded, he succeeded in spectacular fashion, as a mining executive in Australia and China, as a humanitarian in Europe, and as a politician in the United States. But he's best known to history for his role in one failure, the Great Depression, a decade-long economic collapse that impoverished millions in America and across the world. He didn't cause it, and he made superhuman efforts to reverse it, but no matter how hard he tried, he couldn't stop it. If a single individual could have, it might have been this remarkable man. Born in rural Iowa in 1874, Hoover was orphaned at the age of nine. His father, a blacksmith, died when Hoover was just six. His mother, a Quaker preacher, three years later. Unhappy, sullen, and painfully shy as a teenager, he came into his own at Stanford University, then tuition-free. Hoover was in his university's very first graduating class, his field of study being geology. On graduation, he talked himself into a job with a prominent English mining company. 
They sent him to the Australian outback. Conditions were so harsh and diseases so rampant it was almost a suicide mission. But young Hoover was not deterred. He reorganized the company's mines, made them much more profitable, and scouted for new ones. A gold mine he acquired, largely on his own initiative, turned out to be one of the richest in the world. He was on track to become fabulously wealthy when World War I broke out and he abruptly abandoned his business career. In a matter of months, he transformed himself into an internationally recognized humanitarian. Almost single-handedly, he arranged to feed 8 million Belgians threatened with starvation when the war cut off their food supplies. In 1919, with the guns finally silenced, Hoover was charged by President Woodrow Wilson to lead the rebuild of Europe's devastated economy. He tackled the job with his usual ferocious energy and saved tens of millions more from starvation. The New York Times described him as the nearest approach to a dictator Europe has had since Napoleon. They meant it as a compliment. In 1921, the newly elected Republican president, Warren Harding, tapped Hoover to be Secretary of Commerce. He stayed on when Calvin Coolidge took over, following Harding's sudden death in 1923. During his tenure, Hoover laid the groundwork for America's commercial aviation industry. He also organized the building of the Colorado River Dam that now bears his name and made possible the rapid expansion of the American Southwest. And when disastrous flooding struck the Mississippi River Valley in 1927, it was Hoover who managed the massive and successful relief effort. By the time he won the Republican presidential nomination in 1928, he was hailed as a man whose wisdom encompassed all branches, whose judgment was never at fault, who knew the answers to all questions, and who could see in the dark. His election was never in doubt. He won easily. Yet just six months after Hoover's inauguration in the autumn of 1929, the stock market crashed. Slowly and inexorably, the United States followed the rest of the world into the Great Depression. However qualified he was for the presidency, Hoover was no match for the worst economic collapse in modern history, an international phenomenon rooted in the still unresolved upheavals of the First World War far beyond the capacities of any one leader to solve. His political opponents would later claim that he sat on his hands through his four years in office. Hoover, in fact, fought the Depression with vigor and imagination. He expanded the federal government's toolkit for managing the economy and made far more progress in limiting the Depression's damage than is generally recognized. But the Depression exposed Hoover's weaknesses as a political leader. Always a workhorse, often brusque and even surly, he had succeeded in politics not because of his personality, but in spite of it. He made himself an easy target for Franklin Roosevelt, his Democratic challenger in 1932. A master of the political arts, Roosevelt effectively accused Hoover of not caring about the plight of millions of unemployed Americans. Hoover lacked the skills to counter Roosevelt's nonstop attacks. The charges stuck. But it was his stance on prohibition that really did Hoover in. Roosevelt strongly favored repeal. Hoover thought it should remain the law of the land. Roosevelt won in a landslide. An inveterate cigar smoker, the man from Stanford lived on for 30 more years, writing books, managing charities, and overseeing the conservative think tank that he founded and that still operates today. Despite all he accomplished, Herbert Hoover is best remembered for his one great failure.
We would do his memory in American history a service if we also remembered him for his astonishing successes. I'm Kenneth White, author of Hoover, An Extraordinary Life in Extraordinary Times, for Prager University. Thank you for watching this video. To keep PragerU videos free, please consider making a tax-deductible donation. Sometimes a president who appears pathetic is actually just plain tragic. And because he is a president, his tragedy is also the nation's. That was the case of Warren Harding, the 29th president of the United States. Harding was perhaps the most misunderstood and least appreciated of all America's chief executives. Born in 1865 in a small Ohio town halfway between Cleveland and Columbus, Harding was a brave and unusual politician. He didn't start as a politician. He spent most of his life as the editor and publisher of an Ohio newspaper, the Marion Star. He ran unsuccessfully for governor in 1910 and then successfully for senator in 1914. In the presidential election year of 1920, Harding was considered a dark horse at best, but he emerged after 10 ballots as the Republicans' choice. He certainly looked and even acted the part, tall with thick white hair and deep penetrating eyes. Harding was as genial as he was handsome. To know him was to like him. And Americans did like him. He won the 1920 election in a landslide, garnering an astonishing 60% of the popular vote. The country that Warren Harding and his running mate, Calvin Coolidge, inherited faced multiple crises. To win World War I, the government had taken over large sectors of the economy. But what works in war doesn't always work in peace. There was an inflation crisis. Prices for basic necessities like milk and butter rose at alarming rates. Prices that businesses paid for materials doubled. There was a tax crisis. Corporate taxes were so heavy that businesses couldn't expand. There was a labor crisis. Tens of thousands of Americans, many disabled, returned from Europe to find a stagnant economy short of jobs. Angry workers mounted violent strikes, and there was a government debt crisis, a result of war spending. By 1920, it seemed that life in crisis was the new normal. Absolutely not, said Harding. Harding vowed to end the war laws and rules, to let the country go back to the way things were before the war. He wanted common sense life, the kind that had enabled Henry Ford to start his auto business. America's present need, Harding said, is not heroics, but healing. Not nostrums, but normalcy. Normalcy was the motto Harding and Coolidge gave their campaign. The Harding plans for normalcy were simple. Let the Federal Reserve tighten money to wring inflation out of the economy. Cut spending so that the government can pay off the war debt. Cut tax rates to free business and encourage hiring. Block new entitlement payments even to veterans. Instead, build veterans' hospitals. Return those industries that wartime government had taken over back to private hands. In short, give the economy and individuals the freedom to find their own way. After taking office, Harding made all the right moves. He named a tough cabinet, including the nation's great master of debt, the banker Andrew Mellon, to the Treasury Post. 
Harding coaxed Congress into giving the president the executive power he needed to analyze and stop excess spending through the Budget and Accounting Act of 1921. Finally, Harding pushed through tax cuts for individuals and businesses. And for the vets, he planned special hospitals, the origins of the VA. All the pieces were in place for a return to the old normal that Harding had promised. For the first time in a while, America's future looked bright. But here is Harding's tragedy. The man lacked discipline. He planned well, but executed poorly. For example, when it came to those hospitals for veterans, the men Harding put in charge of construction took kickbacks and did shoddy work. When it came to the promised privatization of government oil reserves, Harding looked away when friends leased reserves to their friends. The scandal would be known as Teapot Dome. Harding besmirched the very principles he was advancing. The pressure on Harding kept mounting. He could handle attacks from his enemies, he told a journalist. It was his friends, his damn friends, who kept him awake at night. In the summer of 1923, Harding traveled west. While at the Palace Hotel in San Francisco, Harding passed away suddenly, doubtless due to the pressure of mounting scandal. The new president, Calvin Coolidge, was left to clean up. In the years that followed, the country rose again, in part because Coolidge marshaled the discipline Harding lacked, but also because of those Harding policies with the quirky name, normalcy. Yet Harding was not around to see his own success. Over the decades, salacious stories about his scandals obscured his impressive achievements. That's Harding's real tragedy and our own. I'm Amity Schles, chairman of the Coolidge Foundation for Prager University. Thank you for watching this video. To keep PragerU videos free, please consider making a tax-deductible donation.